Good morning, Grace. I didn't hear very much. Try that again. Hi, Walt. Morning, Grace. All right. This is not mine. This, this, is this, is that? We're going to auction this off. It's an honor to be uh, asked to preach this week's sermon. Um, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10, and uh, it's a long passage, so I want to get going here. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles. So don't be shy. Just shoot your hand up. We've got ushers available with, with Bibles. We ran out last week, but it looks like we're, we've got a, a fresh supply ready. Um, please put up your hand. We'd love to get God's word into it. Uh, this morning and and get God's word into you um, and to all of us. Let me open up with a word of prayer as we turn to Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 52. Father, in Jesus' name, we are so thankful for sending your son to die in our place for being our perfect substitute and sacrifice. We thank you that we can join together in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and worship you, and that you accept our worship because Christ has already done the greatest act of service for us by giving us his righteousness and cleansing us from our sin. I pray that you would, by your spirit, make your word come alive to us, that you would uh, speak to our hearts, that you would help us listen, help us to ask the right questions and to seek the right things. Lord, increase uh, so that your fame will be known throughout our community and throughout the world. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We've got a long passage and want to get going here, but first what I would like to do is uh, give a little bit of review to where we've been in the Gospel of Mark. If you're joining us for the first time this week, uh, you've caught us kind of in the middle of things. We're preaching through the Gospel of Mark. It's the shortest gospel. It's a very fast-paced gospel uh, with the, 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 the favorite transition of Mark being immediately... Um, and then, and then, and in, in dividing it up week by week in these chunks, we might miss the fact that Mark has just told us something important. And so what I want to start off with is just a quick review, a few points to have in the back of our minds as we jump into the text, uh, and then I do want to give you a preview of, of just three big ideas throughout the text leading up to the to the main question I want us to leave here with, which is the title of the sermon. To review the context here, where are we here in Mark? As Kenny reminded us uh, about a month ago, uh, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his death and departure, okay? And so one thing that has happened is Jesus has already predicted his death and resurrection twice. In today's passage, he's going to do it yet a third time. 
And by this time, we might be getting weary of hearing that. Perhaps the disciples got weary of hearing that. But on Father's Day, I think of things like this. I think of all the things I find myself saying as a father that I, would, and I swore I never would, that my father told me, and, and probably mothers say this too. And one of them is, how many times do I have to tell you? How many times do I, how many times do I have to say how many times do I have to tell you? And Jesus no doubt wondered that to himself, and the disciples no doubt wondered that as well, and yet here it is written for us, and if you're like me, I need to hear it again and again and again. As a good friend of mine says, I need to preach the gospel to myself every day. So Jesus has already repeated himself, and he's gonna repeat himself again. Uh, this, the second thing to keep in mind at the, the, the back of our minds is that the disciples were actually promised something very exciting, that they would see the kingdom of God after it had come in power in uh, chapter nine, verse one. And shortly following that, number three, Peter, James, and John, the inner circle, right? Jesus' besties, right? They're like that. They got a special tour of a, a little sneak peek of Christ's glory. And no doubt that the Mount of Transfiguration gave them some ideas about the kingdom uh, that help us make sense of James and John's question in our text today, okay? They were promised they would see Christ's kingdom coming in its glory, and then they saw Jesus in his glory, and they're trying to put pieces together. They're trying to answer all the questions that are going on in their mind. However, following this, uh, Jesus has already had to admonish the disciples squabbling over greatness, who would be the greatest. So he's already talked to them about this. And indeed, what he is up to at this stage of Mark, and indeed throughout the whole gospel account, is he is trying to correct people's conceptions about the kingdom. Christ is correcting people's conceptions about the kingdom. Whether it's the Pharisees, whether it's the disciples, whether it's a rich young ruler, he is trying to reorient people into what his kingdom program is all about. So today, I want us to think about three big ideas, and, and, and if you're taking notes, you could write these down and just have them to, to, to look at every now and again as we walk through the passage together. Three, at least three, lots of big ideas emerge uh, from this passage, but, but I wanna focus on three, emphasize three. Number one, Christ's kingdom defies our worldly wisdom. Jesus is correcting people's conception of the kingdom because Christ's kingdom is very different than what people at his time are expecting, what his disciples are expecting. And number two, Christ is gonna talk about service. Christ served us best by becoming our substitute. Christ served us best by becoming our substitute. And number three, Christ's saving work comes by faith and he then empowers us to follow. And we can't put the, the cart before the horse. Christ's saving work comes by faith and then he empowers us to follow. All right. Well, let's uh, just dive into the passage, roll up our sleeves here and uh, start in verse 32. 
of Mark chapter 10. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking on ahead of them and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, behold, We are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and will deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit upon him and scourge him and kill him and three days later he will rise again. This marks a turning point in the Gospels. Jesus has now set his face towards Jerusalem as it says in in Luke. He is changing uh, the trajectory of his ministry. He is marching up to the nation's capital. And why are people amazed and afraid at this? Think about the early part of Jesus' ministry as he was ministering in Galilee and healing people. Who came from Jerusalem to check out what this new rabbi, young, upstart, popular, guy was all about. We have the religious teachers, the Pharisees, and they all came to pepper him with questions and to cross-examine him and to try to catch him in some heresy and frankly uh, to try to win back uh, the affections of the people they had clearly lost because this man Jesus is answering all of their questions. He is perplexing them with his own questions. He is teaching them with his own authority and he is putting his fingers squarely on their own hypocrisy. Of course they want to kill him. So why are you going to Jerusalem? Why are you walking into the lion's den Why are you headed straight to the capital of people who want you dead? It would appear that Jesus is maybe trying to start a fight. Now the interesting thing of course is that there were many among the followers of Jesus, even within his own disciples, who would have been, yes, finally, it's go time, right? The zealots, even Judas Iscariot might have, say he might have been a zealot, wanted, yes, Jesus is gonna go up to Jerusalem and he is going to get rid of Herod, uh, this guy who has made nice with the Romans and expel him, get rid of this corrupt political system and restore the kingdom of Israel. If Jesus is the Messiah, he's gonna sit on David's throne. That was their expectation for the kingdom. They had a kingdom on earth right now in mind. But then Jesus says, actually I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles and I'm going to be killed. I'm going to suffer. And then I'm going to rise again. This doesn't seem like worldly wisdom. This is not the way you start a kingdom with the king being handed over to the people you're supposed to overthrow. Now, in the first two uh, instances of Jesus telling this to his disciples, saying, look, this is what's coming, uh, in the first case, you know, it, met, it meets resistance, and Peter is rebuked. In the second case, they're kind of too afraid to ask. They're like, well, we got kind of slapped on the wrist 
uh, the last time, and uh, we just we don't know. So they kept silent. And here, we don't even get an acknowledgement that they were paying attention. We get straight to James and John have their own agenda. Verse 35. And James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to him, saying to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Talk about asking for a blank check. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? I want us to keep that question in mind. You'll notice that's the title of this sermon. I want us to keep that question in mind and think, how would you answer that question? And they said to him, grant that we may sit in your glory, one on your right and one on your left. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. (laughs) I can't help but snicker over that a little bit. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. This is Jesus' nice way of saying, no. Have you ever had to inform someone awkwardly that something they thought was for them is for somebody else? If you have children, Right? Ooh, what's that big? Pe- I'm sorry, it's not for you. Jesus is rather kind and patient with them at this point. Let's think about who James and John are. Sons of Zebedee, sons of thunder is their nickname that Jesus gave them. Probably meant they were big, explosive kinds of personalities. Not the stereotype picture we have of the Apostle John, right? Who talks about love all the time. Isn't that encouraging? He came a long way. Let's let's look at where we find James and John in other places in the gospel. Um, We we actually don't have to look too far. Uh, In in chapter nine, the the last chapter in verse 38, remember it was John who uh, says, oh Jesus, somebody was casting out demons in your name but he wasn't with us so we tried to stop him. And yeah, what, what, what does that reveal about him? In Luke's gospel, he tells us that immediately following the, the, the transfiguration, as Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, passing through Samaria, the Samaritans reject him. And what did James and John want from Jesus? Jesus, should we, uh, should we call down fire from heaven and, and, uh, and toast these Samaritans? These guys would make great mall cops, right? You just see this vindictiveness. You see this kind of self-righteousness. Hey, we're in the inner circle, right? We've seen Jesus in his glory. Now let's, let's be gentle with them as Jesus is gentle with them. They at least see the kingdom, right? They're getting glimpses of the kingdom and they realize that glory is coming. There are crowns coming, but they don't see the cross. And before you get the crowns, Jesus needs to go to the cross. And so they have to be taught. 
They have to be reoriented back to what Jesus just said in verses 33 and 34. So Jesus calls the huddle. All right, bring it in, guys. Because the other 10 are grumbling, obviously. Oh, you, what, you weren't paying attention? He just talked to us about this. Come on, you guys. And you sent your mom. That's the other, you know, Mark left that out, but, you know, we're treated to that. I mean, what Jewish mother wouldn't want that for her boys, right? Um, just want what's best, what mom or father wouldn't, Right? But they have in mind this sitting at the right and left hands of Christ flanking the coming king. It would have been a place of honor and it would have been a place perhaps even of of authority. The ability to judge. Jesus even told the 12, "You you will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. So that's what they're thinking. But Jesus has to correct their conception of the kingdom it says, you know that those who are recognized, this is verse 30, 42, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. Oh, yeah, you're right. Think about Herod, who just a little while ago beheaded Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, Think of Rome, that the empire that just, everything it touched, it controlled. Where if you met a centurion on the road, uh, they could pretty much make you do anything they wanted. No doubt that was in their minds as Jesus reminds them. Because you see, James and John and perhaps the rest of the disciples are running the risk of going down the same path that the Pharisees and teachers of the law have already gone down, which is a gospel of self-righteousness, a gospel of works and, and authoritative control of behavior and being exclusive rather than enfolding a gospel for some rather than for all. But Jesus says, it is is not so among you. For whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. This is a radical departure from everything they have in mind of the Messiah. Gerald uh, took us to uh, Daniel chapter seven. And, and what it says in Daniel chapter seven about the Son of Man is, uh, it says, the nations will serve and obey him. Maybe they were thinking of that. But as Walt led us in beautiful song and recitation, Jesus has in mind Isaiah 53 first, the suffering servant. That Jesus came to serve us first. Yes, he is coming as king and, and as conqueror, but not before he serves us. Now at this point, 
this sermon could very easily stop short of the gospel and become a message about how, how all we need to do is just serve more. Our biggest problem, really, is that we're selfish and therefore we need to become unselfish and so the best way to become unselfish is to just start serving. So that's the takeaway, right? We just get out there, start serving. Do ministry. Do the Lord's work, okay? But that's not where Jesus takes it and that's not where we can leave it because that's not the gospel. That's what the rich young ruler thought the kingdom really amounted to, was rule keeping. Was, what what, what can I do? Jesus is about to say the most radical thing, and that's verse 45, which is, I think, the keystone of this passage and indeed the keystone of the entire book of Mark. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. To give his life as a ransom for many. Christ served us best to become and became our substitute. At this point, they were worried about who, who was the greatest in the kingdom of God. Isn't the answer to that question obvious? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? It's the greatest servant. And who's the greatest servant? Well, it's Jesus. And he has this, he gives us this idea of ransom. And I love that Walt has been taking us through hymns and readings and recitations that talk about this substitutionary atonement of Jesus. Life for life. I want us to think about this idea of a ransom just real quick. What, what, what comes to your mind when you think about someone being ransomed? If you're like me, you think of a hostage situation, right? A ransom is paid to release someone who is helplessly and hopelessly held hostage. You like all those H's? Sometimes I speak Baptist. Sorry, I just... But I want you to think about what is on the inside of that idea of being ransomed and what it actually, the depth that it communicates. It shows us how deeply we need Jesus himself. Um, the first thing that should be clear about a ransom situation, a hostage situation, it's not really much of a hostage situation and it's certainly not uh, a good idea to ask for a ransom if the person being held hostage can get out of it on their own, right? You don't ransom those people. It reminds me of the movie, if you've seen The Avengers, okay, opening scene, you got Black Widow sitting tied up to the chair, right? And you think, oh, she's, she's in trouble. But if you haven't seen any of the other movies with Black Widow, you'd realize, <laughs> no, she's got this, okay? And you got the phone call, yes, we demand this, and, and, or we'll kill her. And they're like, yeah, right. And, 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 and the man that the bad guys are, are expecting some sort of payment from uh, stiffs them and says, no, no, 
Why? Because he knows that she's about to turn that chair into a lethal weapon and take them all out. Okay? A ransom doesn't make sense if we can get out of it on our own. That's the first thing we need to remember about a ransom. Okay? It's not just Jesus gives us a little boost. If you were in a hopeless, helpless, hostage situation and you got that phone call, what would you ask for? A sandwich? Nail file? Maybe a, I don't know, a medal for bravery? So, we're needy. We're desperately needy. The second thing that a ransom communicates is that you can't extract a ransom from someone who doesn't care about the person being ransomed. No one pays a ransom for someone they don't value. The fact that Jesus offered his life as a ransom for many is the greatest act of love that the world has ever seen because in giving himself life for life, I am offering a divine payment in exchange for you, a prisoner exchange, if you will. He is communicating, I value you. I love you. And that value was not just in ourselves. We weren't very lovable. The irony is we are hostages to sin. And we are willing hostages to sin. In a sense, we have bound ourselves to sin quite happily. And Jesus so loved us that his mission, the thing he is doing very much on purpose, is to head to Jerusalem to die He is not making things up as he goes along. This is not an Indiana Jones kind of a thing. You've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, and there's that great line where Indiana Jones is, okay, what do I do next? And somebody asks, okay, so what are you going to do? And he says, I don't know. I'm making up as I go along, okay? Jesus is not making up as he goes along. A lot of people believe that Jesus was just, well, you know, he was this misunderstood kind of philosopher, sage. You know, he was a good man, but... You know, he just made the wrong enemies at the wrong time, and it's just really a tragedy and all of that. And no, Jesus is pushing the envelope every step of the way. Every step of the way. Why? Because he had you and me in his mind. I'm going to rescue them. I'm going to ransom them. A ransom is a rescue. And until we can recognize that we need to be rescued, There's nothing we can do to serve God. That's what the Pharisees didn't get, and that's what the rich young ruler didn't get. And that's what the disciples are in danger of not getting, and that's what we are in danger of not getting if we don't see where this passage leads us. The third thing, the third thing that a ransom suggests is that when you are ransomed, if if your life has been purchased, you are now under new ownership you are no longer under the ownership and the control of your captors. Now, 
This is a radically different conception of a kingdom. This explodes all of our uh, preconceived ideas of merit and grace, or excuse me, of greatness. But it's what Jesus' kingdom is all about. So why is the next passage this this little sidelight healing of, of Bartimaeus. I have to, I have to confess, when, uh, when Kenny Clark asked me to, to preach this sermon and, and showed me the, you know, gave me the passage, I looked at it, and I went, okay, cool, yeah, cool, oh, awesome. And then there's Bartimaeus. That's, that's kind of odd. Thanks, Kenny. <laughs> what, am I, what am I supposed to do with this? Because um, it kind of sticks, it's, it's, it's an odd uh, Seems, does it fit with this one? Does it fit with that one? Is it its own thing? What is it? I'm, I'm grateful for this last part because of what it seems clear to me now. Thank you, Holy Spirit, uh, that it has. Let's, let's continue. And they came to Jericho. And as he was going out from Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, a blind beggar Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. And when he heard that it was Jesus, the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. It seems a little odd, perhaps even a little mean-spirited, to call for the blind man to come to you. Why didn't Jesus go to him? I think he did it for the benefit of those who were telling him to shut up. Because look how they turn on a dime. Oh, uh, cheer up, (laughs) is is how that can be translated. Take courage, he's calling you. Sorry. Woe to stumbling blocks. Woe to those who put obstacles in the way of people who want to come to Jesus. I feel convicted by that because I know I've, it's, it's, it's easy to push aside, marginalize, ignore. This, this kingdom's not for you. This guy's an important man. He's, 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 on, a, he's on a kingly mission. Notice Bartimaeus gives him his kingly title, son of David. It's the only place in Mark's gospel where this title is used, son of David. Have mercy. Verse 50, casting aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. As a blind beggar, Bartimaeus had three strikes working against him. Actually two, and the third is suggested by the text. One, 
He was born blind, and therefore it would have been assumed by the religious leaders at the time that he was under God's judgment and curse. And he was one of those reprobate characters. The blessings of Israel are not for you. Number two, he was blind, so he couldn't work. And the only thing he could have done was beg. And so the cloak that he has was probably his, own, his only possession. And commentators, uh, historians suggest that uh, it was probably what he laid out in front of him to collect the money. Notice he jumps up and leaves it. He did what the rich young ruler couldn't do. He left everything because he had faith. That's where this is headed. But the third thing, the third strike against Bartimaeus is that he was probably a Gentile or at least half Gentile. Notice Mark takes odd pains to emphasize the fact that there's this Timaeus in his name. He says it twice. The son of Timaeus, that is Bartimaeus. He says it two different ways. Uh, in Greek and then with the uh, Aramaic uh, prefix bar, which means son of, like Simon bar Jonah, Simon son of Jonah. Odd that in a gospel where the writer doesn't seem to be wasting a lot of words, why would he spend all that time just to emphasize son of Timaeus? I don't know, I can't prove this, but I wonder if he's not emphasizing this to make a point. But this man, this man is important enough to have his name recorded. We don't even know the name of the rich young ruler. The name Timaeus uh, was probably a Latinization of a Greek name. His father was probably Greek. So at best, he was maybe half Jewish. But even then, you know, he would have been an outsider. He'd been, he, he would be absolutely the last person you would expect to see the kingdom of God and to, and to enter into it. And one last little tidbit. I, don't, I can't prove that this is on purpose, but it's, it's interesting to me. The name Timaeus, the root meaning of Timaeus is honor. The son of honor. He honors Jesus with the title, the kingly title. And Jesus honors him. Why? Because of his faith. Now, look what Jesus says to him. And answering him, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? He asks the same question of Bartimaeus as he asked to James and John. Same question. As, as my good friend Doug Geringer, who's a Greek scholar, pointed out, I gotta give props to my friend Doug over there, who's a, a, a godly man and full of wisdom. The Greek verb that's used in this question and the previous question is also used in the question that the rich young ruler asks of Jesus. So let's get the flow of what Mark is doing here. The rich young ruler is asking something like, what might I do to inherit eternal life? And his idea is that, well, I can do it with rule keeping. 
rather than humbling myself, forsaking all and trusting in Jesus, in him alone, rather than my wealth. Jesus turns the question around, what do you want me to do for you? He's testing his disciples. And he asks the same question to Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus responds, and the blind man said to him, Rabbi, just a few shekels, spare denarii, is that all we want? What do we want from Jesus? Bartimaeus is instructive because he knows exactly what his greatest need is and he trusts that Jesus can meet it. Rabbi, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. That's the emphasis. Christ substituted himself, life for life. He ransomed us and in so doing, rescued us. We've gotta get that right first. And the only way that that can apply to us is if we cry out to him in faith. And look what Jesus says. Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. Bartimaeus could have gone anywhere. And Jesus, in healing him, gives him freedom. For the first time in his life, All things are possible. With man it was impossible. With God all things are possible. And Bartimaeus becomes a follower of Jesus. Christ empowers us to follow him. We've got to get that right. We don't save ourselves. There is no amount of service we can render to God that will atone for the debt that we owe to God because we owe him everything. There's no extra credit that we can do. I'm a teacher. I get asked for extra credit all the time. I hate that. (laughs) So do all your teachers. Just a little secret, okay? And God doesn't want us to ask for extra credit from us, (laughs) Jesus did the extra credit for us. Christ's obedience paid it all. His sacrifice paid it all. And the good news is, going back to verse 34, he would rise again, and he did rise again, and he lives. And he empowers us to follow him on the way. So, I want us to ask this simple question by way of application. The takeaway is the title. What do you want me to do for you? If Jesus were in the room right now sitting next to you, if he were to cruise by and you were able to get his attention and have a real quick face-to-face and he asked you, what do you want me to do for you? What would you say? What's the first thing that comes to your heart? this, This question really stabs at me because I think it points out all the things that I tend to ask for in sort of a blase 
manner. And the more and more I read the word, the more and more I see the example of more mature brothers and sisters in Christ, the more and more I realize that I need Christ's power to transform me. That's what I need. I certainly don't need more attention from others. I certainly don't need accolades. I don't need more authority. I don't need the things that James and John were asking for. I need the kind of power from the Holy Spirit that would enable me to suffer someday for the sake of Christ. And I know many of us have suffered in many ways. Many of you have suffered for Christ's sake. And it's a good thing. So in closing, what I want to do is I want to, I want to give you guys some time and, and me some time to meditate on this question. What do you want Jesus to do for you? If you don't know Jesus, if this is your first time here and you're new to this Christianity stuff or maybe you've heard it a lot over and over, how many times, and all of a sudden, boom, it's clicking. The first thing you need to do is cry out. Take courage. He is calling you. And the first prayer you need to pray is, Lord Jesus, I am a helpless, hopeless hostage to sin, and I need you to rescue me. Let that be your first prayer. Those of us who are walking with Christ, we might need to meditate on Scripture and ask the Holy Spirit to give us illumination, but I trust he will do that. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, help us right now as we meditate on this question that Jesus has asked twice and is now asking of us.